This morning we're starting a new service uh, series called Linked. Linked um, for the next four weeks in November. We're going to talk about the different relationships that you find yourselves linked in. Uh, and uh, you and I are linked in very di- various relationships in our lives. Uh, and uh, today we're going to talk about linked in marriage. And I recognize at the start of this message that some of you are linked in marriage, some of you are not linked in marriage, some of you used to be linked in marriage, some of you are linked in marriage again. I understand all kinds of different scenarios that are here. Uh, but my prayer is uh, anytime we have a passage or a message that, uh, that really targets one particular uh, place in life, that whether you are in that place in life or not, that you will gain value from being here because as a Christian, we need to learn how to think Christianly and biblically about all different aspects of life. And if you're not married, you know people who are. And so it's important that all of us can think Christianly and in a biblical perspective on all of these things and this morning, particularly when it comes to marriage. And so we're going to talk about that uh, this morning. One child, when... uh, When they were asked in Sunday school class, what did Jesus say about marriage? The child's response was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. (laughs) That's not really what Jesus said about marriage. But some of you may feel like that's what Jesus should have said about marriage. I want to talk about marriage this morning through a particular lens using a particular illustration. And it's the illustration of the scoreboard. We've got scoreboards all over the place in life, don't we? Some of you spent the last couple weeks looking at this scoreboard pretty intently. We have scoreboards certainly on our fields, on our courts, around our ice, whatever it may be, whatever your sport might be. We have scoreboards all over the place. But we also have scoreboards away from the sports fields and courts. We have scoreboards in almost every aspect of our life. We have scoreboards at work. Some of your workplaces may have very literal scoreboards and they have signs that look like this to uh, show you who's winning the game. Maybe your work has a scoreboard like that or sometimes they have, uh, you know, boards that say who had the most sales this month, who did the best customer service this month, who had the, you know, whatever it might be. Many workplaces and job places will post scoreboards so everybody knows what the score is. But even if your workplace doesn't do that, I promise you, you have a scoreboard in your head that you keep at your workplace, whatever it might be. You show up a little early for work when you didn't have to be there, you give yourself a point, right? You stay a little later when you didn't have to stay, another point for you. One of your co-workers takes a vacation during the busiest time in the quarter when there's a big project due and and they leave and they kind of hang you out to dry, they lose points. (laughs) We keep scoreboards. They might be literal, they might not be, but we keep scoreboards in life all over the place. We keep scoreboards at school if you're a student. The scoreboard I, I find at school keeps changing You know, when I was in school, the scoreboard was letters. It was like you got an A or you got an F. I mean, and somewhere in between. Now they changed the scoreboard. Now a lot of schools have numbers for their scoreboard. But I don't care if it's letters or numbers or animals. We keep score in school. MCAS, SATs, we keep score. 
And at the end of the at the end of it all, we look up at the scoreboard and we see who the winner is, and we say who had the highest score, and we call that person the valedictorian. And who had the second highest score, and we call you the salutatorian. We keep score at school. We keep score all over the place. We keep score in our friendships and our relationships. You make me laugh, you tell a funny joke, you get a point. You pick up the tab and we go out to dinner, you get two points. You forget a friend's birthday on Facebook, you lose points. And we keep score. We keep score all over the place. Churches keep score. I'm around other pastors. Oh, how many do you have in worship last week? How many do you? Oh, we keep score. Oh, you guys have missions? We go on missions trips. You guys have two services? We have three. You have one campus? We have two. We keep score all over the place. Various places, even if there's not a literal scoreboard, we end up keeping score, even in our relationships. And maybe especially in our marriages. We keep score. I did the dishes this morning. I get a point. You vacuumed the house last week. You get a point. You stayed at work late and didn't get home to walk the dog and he made a mess of the house that I had to clean up. You lose points. Or wherever I gave you points. I don't know which one was me and you. We have scoreboards. We spent three days with your family last Christmas. We're going to spend three days with my family this Christmas. We spent so much for your mom for her birthday. We got to spend the exact same amount for my mom for her birthday. We keep score. We have scoreboards all over the place in our marriages and in our families. The scoreboards can cause issues at times. The problem is the very nature of a scoreboard causes tension, right? The very nature of a scoreboard, if you are playing for a team and you look up at the scoreboard in the middle of the game, it causes tension. Either you're ahead and you feel pretty good about yourself and you have a temptation to get prideful and you have a temptation to to just, hey, rest on what you did yesterday and don't worry about what you have to do now because look at the scoreboard. Look who's ahead, right? We do it in our relationships. And if you're behind and you look up at the scoreboard and you know you're behind, you start feeling bad about yourself because you're not as good. You're not, you're not keeping up. Scoreboards cause tension. And sometimes they're the ultimate measuring stick. Sometimes you'll go to a, a sporting event, you know, and, and the tr- crowd will start chanting, scoreboard when the opposition may be making a fuss over a small play, but they say, look, the bottom line is the scoreboard. Bottom line is the scoreboard. Look up. Someone's winning. Someone's losing. And of course, at the end of the game, you look up, and there was a winner, and there was a loser. And the problem is, we sometimes take this same mentality into our relationships and into marriage, and we look up and say, there's going to be a winner, and there's going to be a loser, and I don't want to be the loser. We look up at the scoreboard, somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose, and sometimes we take this mentality into our marriage. But let me tell you, if you take this mentality into your marriage, you're not going to end up with a winner and a loser. You're going to end up with two losers. Right? Because if I get into an argument with my wife, and I know that I am right, 
And I fight to convince her until the point that she knows that I am right. And we get to the point that she eventually says, fine, you're right, I was wrong, I'm sorry. Guess what? At the end of the night, guys, we're both losers. Trust me, right? I mean, that's what happens. You can fight to be the winner, but in the end, you end up with both people losing. So when we bring scoreboard, the scoreboards into our relationships, we need to be careful, and especially in our marriage. But I do want to talk about this morning a scoreboard in your marriage that I think you do need to pay attention to, a scoreboard in your relationship. There is one, at least one, that I want to talk about this morning that I believe God wants you to keep, that I believe God wants you to keep your eye on, that I believe that if you keep an eye on this scoreboard, it will not take away, it will add to your relationship. And then if you don't keep your eye on this particular scoreboard, you may lack joy and fulfillment in your marriage relationship. But just before I get there, let me talk about the scoreboard we usually keep in marriage. I'll put this down here for a second. Let me talk about the scoreboard we usually keep in marriage because there is one. There's a scoreboard that the world that you and I live in has taught us to keep in marriage that is not biblical. There's a scoreboard that our culture has taught us to keep. See, when we uh, grow up in any particular culture or society, we have a particular way of thinking about things. When we come to Christ, when we become followers of Jesus, much of our thinking needs to be transformed. And our culture has taught us to think about marriage in a particular way. The first part of this Romans passage, verses 1 and 2, talk about this dynamic. In verse 2, it says, Don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In other words, what Paul is saying is, look, before you come to Jesus, there's a particular way you think about things. Everything. Not just religious things. Not just where you're going when you die. Not just creation. Not just was Jesus. Not just religious things. There's a particular lens and way that you think about things. The world has given it to you. But don't be conformed to that way of thinking. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Start thinking in a Christian way about things. So there is a particular way and lens that you view everything, including marriage. And there's a particular scoreboard that you bring from your culture and your society to marriage that's come about from the world that we live in. It's a scoreboard that your grandparents didn't keep. It's a scoreboard that my grandparents didn't keep. But it's a scoreboard that in the last 30 years, you and I have undoubtedly been taught is the most important scoreboard in marriage. And it is this. It's the scoreboard of your personal happiness. The scoreboard of your personal happiness. We live in a world and we live in a culture that says the most important scoreboard in your life is this. Are you happy? Are you happy? You should be happy. You deserve to be happy. And if you're not happy, then something is wrong. And so maybe something needs to change. The scoreboard we look at is the scoreboard of happiness. I cannot even imagine my grandparents sitting around one day, I mean, I just, I, if you've met my, Amerigo and Jean, they've, they've gone on now, but I cannot imagine them sitting over the table at lunchtime, 
you know, over their orange sodas and, 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 and pasta that they would eat at lunch and saying, I'm not really happy. I think I'm going to leave this marriage. I don't even think that would enter their mind. But I don't think there's a person that gets married today that doesn't think about, is this going to make me happy? And it's this scale of happiness that we often bring, this scoreboard of happiness. So let me just talk about three problems that come up if we, if we keep the scoreboard of happiness in our marriage. If happiness is our scoreboard, then I just want to talk quickly about three things that, that become a problem with that. And the first one is this. When happiness is your scoreboard, you, you think about getting out when you're no longer happy. When happiness is your scoreboard, when you're no longer happy, you think about getting out. Here's the way the thinking goes in the world around you, in the world around us. I'm supposed to be happy. I deserve to be happy. If I'm not happy, then I'm not going to make my wife happy and, or my husband happy, and they're not going to be happy, and my kids aren't going to be happy. So the most loving thing for me to do is, is to get out so that they and, and I can try and find our happiness someplace else, and so that they can be happy, and so that I can be happy, I should get out. So we live in a world that the scoreboard has become happiness. Tim Keller puts it this way in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. Today we stay connected to people only as long as they are meeting our particular needs at an acceptable cost to us. This used to only be the case about consumer relationships. You know, you go to a store, you buy something. If it's cheaper someplace else, I'll go to another store. But now it's come into our relationships all of our relationships, maybe except kids. Kids are still sacred these days, right? We, we don't take this to kids, but we used to not take this to marriage. But in marriage now, if it costs too much, if it's costing me too much, if you're not meeting my needs, then it might be that I'm going to leave because the scoreboard is happiness. And when the scoreboard is happiness, you think about getting out when you're no longer happy. The problem is the transformed thinking that needs to take place is that when you enter and you look at marriage through a Christian worldview, that marriage is not a contract. I've said this before. Marriage is a covenant, and there's a difference. Marriage is a covenant when it comes to Christian marriage. If someone comes to me and says, will you do my wedding? I'll say, no, I don't do weddings. If you want me to help you enter into the covenant of Christian marriage, of lifelong uh, living uh, together in Christian matrimony, I'd love to help you with that. There's a difference. Because in a wedding, when the bride, 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 groom, standing in front of me, and they're making their vows to one another, in a wedding, they're just making their vows to one another. They're saying, I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise. In a covenant, you're not just making your vows to one another. You are also going to make your vows and stand before God and say, I make my vow to God and before God that I will live out before him and before these people these vows that I have just made to you. There's a big difference between covenant and contract. And when you enter into the, the, the transformed Christian way of thinking is when you enter into marriage, it's a covenant, not a contract. There's a horizontal and a vertical aspect to it. But our world kind of looks at it like this. It's about our own happiness. And so one of the late night uh, comedy guys, he said this. 
The latest rumor is that Kanye West has proposed marriage to Kim Kardashian. Reportedly, Kanye said, I pledge to love, honor, and cherish you like no one else on earth, and then turned from his mirror and proposed to Kim. It's comical, but there's a little too much truth to it, isn't there? That many in our world think, I'm first, my happiness, I will love, cherish, and honor me, and if you can add to my happiness, then you can come along for the ride. But if you don't add to my happiness, then you may be done. And that's the scoreboard in our world. That's often what happens. But God doesn't look at marriage that way. In fact, God looks at marriage, Christian marriage, when God had to give us an illustration of how much he loved his people and what his faithfulness to his people was like, he chose marriage. He said, I am going to be faithful to you like a husband is faithful to his wife. But he also chose to say that when you leave me, it hurts me like it hurts a husband or a wife committing adultery. In fact, in one of the most powerful and bizarre things God ever asked one of his prophets to do, he asked a man, Hosea, who was a prophet of God. He said, Hosea, my people have walked away from me and they don't get it. Yeah, I'm paraphrasing. But basically he said, they don't understand what they're doing. They don't, hurt, they don't understand how much they're hurting me. So I want to give them an illustration to show them how much it hurts when they walk away from me. So Hosea, I want you to go and marry a prostitute and have children with her. Now think of Hosea. Growing up in the church, Young man, keeping himself pure, waiting for marriage, got his promise ring, you know, all that kind of stuff. No, 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 God, I'm waiting. I'm following you. I'm waiting for your choice. Hosea, go marry a prostitute and have kids with her. And then she's going to leave you. And then his wife leaves him, and then God's word to Hosea in chapter 3 of Hosea, he says this, The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute and be intimate with any man. I will live with you. But she does. She leaves again. But when God wanted to show the pain that he has caused when people leave him, he says, it's like the pain of breaking, not a contract, not of something you would have as long as you're happy, but it's like the pain of someone breaking their marriage covenant forsaking their vows. So he tells, can you imagine Hosea's conversation? I mean, 15, I don't know, it, it settled on 15 shekels of silver. What was the negotiation process like as he's trying to buy his wife back? But God said, that's, the marriage covenant is so sacred that I just want to show, I want to show how much I love 
people and he used marriage. In Ephesians, God does it again. He says, the way of a husband with a wife is like the way with Christ and his church. In Revelation, it comes again where he says, Jesus is coming back for his bride. Marriage is it's not just this idea that, hey, we're gonna, it's going to help us do life better. It'll, it'll be easier for us to pay the bills and maybe we'll be enjoy each other. It's not about that. There is a covenantal aspect of it that God says is sacred and holy. And we miss that when we think it is just about our happiness. Secondly, this, when happiness is your scoreboard, you have not chosen freely. You are a slave to your current visceral feelings. We don't think of it that way, right? We think, I want to be free to love whoever I want to love. You're not free. You're just a slave to how you felt when you got up that morning. You're just a slave to to what you felt when somebody walked across the street and you couldn't stop watching. You're not free. When happiness is our scoreboard, we become a slave to our current and immediate visceral feelings instead of being free to actually choose to be with someone and stay with someone. That's a choice. When you don't have a choice, it's when you just follow your current feelings, you just follow your stomach, you just follow your desires at that moment. See, that's why we make vows. It's not to follow our current feelings. You stand there and you make vows to one another in sickness and in health, in richer or poor, because if I don't make these vows, I'm not going to want to stay with you in sickness and poorness. Poorness, is that a word? Let's make it poverty. Sickness and poverty. I don't want to stay, but we vow to do that. We vow to do that, right? The only way I can be free to love deeply in the future is if I will keep my promises from the past. Think about that for a second. The only way you can be free to love deeply in the future is if you will keep your promises from the past. Who is going to trust their heart with you if you won't keep your word? Who is going to trust you with their most vulnerable part of their being if they can't trust you to keep your word and your vows? See, what we all long for is to be fully known and fully loved. To know that there's someone that knows everything about us and still loves us in spite of it. That's what we long for from God and that's what we long for from at least one person on this earth that they would fully know us and still love us. But if we don't keep our past promises and commitments, how will we ever know that future love? Linda Waite in her book Does Divorce Make People Happy? She said this, Longitudinal studies demonstrate that two-thirds of those unhappy marriages out there will become happy within five years if people stay married and do not get divorced. Two-thirds of those unhappy marriages out there will become happy within five years if people stay married and do not get divorced. If you stay through the hard stuff, there's a good chance that you're going to get to a place to experience happiness and love that you couldn't experience otherwise. Sometimes it takes just sticking through. 
Which kind of brings me to the third and final point about happiness as your scoreboard in this. When happiness is your scoreboard, my loving actions must be accompanied by loving feelings. And this one takes a little thinking about. When happiness is your scoreboard, loving actions must be accompanied by loving feelings. I'm not going to break out in the righteous brothers. You've lost that loving feeling. But there's some truth here. There's some truth to what our world thinks. That in order to act loving, I need to feel in love. That in order to act loving towards someone, in order to act loving towards my spouse, I need to feel in love with that person. The problem is that feelings are temporary and fleeting and undependable. And if we base a covenant on them, it's not going to last. But our world tells us that in order to be authentic and not be a hypocrite, then your actions must be accompanied by feelings. If they're not, you're just faking it. And you're a hypocrite. And you're not authentic. And you're not honest. Well, let me tell you what's not honest. To act like you feel loving towards someone all the time. To, to, to pretend that you're going to feel loving towards someone all the time. That's not honest. It's not going to happen. It doesn't happen. It's unrealistic. The Bible talks about this reality, even talks about this reality in the most intimate place between a husband and a wife. The most intimate place. You know, there's this, this place when a husband and a wife are physically intimate with one another, and this TV shows us this picture that when it happens, everyone's in the mood, and it's exciting, and it's passionate all the time. And if it's not like that for you, something's wrong. But the Bible's a little more realistic about it. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. says, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife body doesn't belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Easy disclaimer. This is not justifying any type of abuse or anything like that in a marital relationship or anything like that or any rape in marriage or anything like that. This is not justifying that. But what this is saying is Paul's saying, here's the reality. You're not always going to be in the mood. And if you wait till you're both in the mood, you're not ever going to be intimate. <laughs> and he says, so here's the reality. Here, here, here's this is basically what Paul's saying in this moment. Act loving even when you don't feel loving feelings. Act loving even when you don't feel loving feelings. And you say, that's crazy. What, what, that, that's so against, that's so countercultural to what we're taught. But let me put it another way. Let me put it this way. Suppose, let me give you two scenarios. My son comes to me and asks to play a game with him. And he says, he says, I, I want to play a game. Come on, let's play a game. And one scenario is he comes on one day and wants to play a game with me. And I am just, I am just, I got so much to do. I've got a sermon to prepare. I've got phone calls to make. I've got stuff in the house that, that, I, that not only needs to be done, I kind of want to do. I've got projects I'd like to do. I've got something on TV I'd like to watch. I've got a hundred other things I'd need to rather be doing at that moment. Second scenario, he comes to me and says, Hey, Dad, I want to play a game. 
and I've got nothing on the agenda. I've got nothing going on. I've got nothing happening. And I, you know, I kind of want to play a game too. I was looking for something to do. And I've got nothing better to do. Now, both times I respond and say, yes, let's play a game together. Which one took the most love? Which one was the most loving? When I'm not in the mood, when I have other things to do, when I got better things to do, but I say, look, for your sake, which one's the most loving? Because loving feelings will not always accompany loving actions. And if you expect that you're always going to, if you wait for yourself to feel love in order to act love, your marriage is going to be in trouble. Because it's just not always going to happen. It's kind of like food, right? Let me make another analogy. Um, I, maybe I'm wrong on this, but I'm throwing it out there. Some scientist can disprove me on this. But I don't think we can control the things that taste good to us. Maybe we can. Maybe I'm wrong. But I, I, I think you eat and some things taste good to you and some things don't taste good to you. And so for me, look, broccoli just doesn't taste good to me. I don't know why. Yeah, can I get a witness? It just, it just doesn't. And I know some people love, and have you tried it? I know, have you tried it when I cooked it? Have you tried it with cheese? I know, it doesn't taste good to me. And I can't control that. No matter how I eat broccoli, fried, steamed, boiled, whatever, I don't like broccoli. I can't control that feeling. But if I'm invited over to someone's house and they put broccoli on the table and I put it in my mouth, I'm not going to feel like I like broccoli. But I can control the action of whether I'm going to eat broccoli or not for the sake of that person, for the sake of that home, for the sake of the relationship. It's kind of like that, right? You're not always in the mood to act loving. But you can control whether you are going to act loving or not. You may not always feel loving, but you can control whether you're going to act loving or not. And Tim Keller, so he has this quote in his book as well in, uh, in The Meaning of Marriage. He says, Wedding vows are not a declaration of present love, but a mutually binding promise of future love. In a wedding, you stand up before God, your family, and all the main institutions of society, and you promise to be loving, faithful, and true to the other person in the future, regardless of undulating internal feelings or external circumstances. So I am standing there in that moment, not saying, I promise I will always feel this way. You can't. You can't make that promise. I can't make that promise. I can't make the promise that in that moment before all our friends and dressed in our best clothes and, and everything on the day and everyone's excited for us and I can't promise I'm always going to feel this way. What I can promise to you and before God is I will always act this way. I will always act loving. I will always act in your best interest. I will always act lovingly towards you. That's what I pledge. I pledge in the future richer, poorer, sickness, health, that I will love you. 
Not always feel loving, but act loving. And so that brings us to the scoreboard I think God wants us to keep in marriage. Happiness isn't the scoreboard you want to keep in marriage. That'll, that'll kill your marriage. But happiness is the scoreboard that our world tells you and it's going to try and get you to keep. The scoreboard that I think God wants you to pay attention to, according to Romans chapter 12, is in verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. In the next few weeks, as we go through this relationship series, we're going to look at all these different relationships through Romans 12 and different aspects of it. And this part of Romans 12, it applies to all our relationships, but it especially, I think, applies in marriage. Outdo one another. I love the way the ESV translate it this way. Outdo one another in showing honor. In other words, if you're going to have a competition in your marriage... If you're going to have a competition in your relationships, if you're going to compete about something, if you're going to fight about who has the last word, then make the last word honor. Then make the last word love. Make the competition about who's going to honor and love the other person the most. Compete about that. And not so that you owe me something, but man, you did that for me. I'm going to do this for you. you did, I'm going to outdo you. I am not going to let you outlove me. I am not going to let you outhonor me. I am, not, I am going to make sure that you feel you are the most important person on the planet to me. And wives and husbands, husbands, if your wife does not feel like she is the most important person on the planet, the most she comes before every relationship, she comes before your mom, she comes before your kids, she comes before your friends at work, she comes before the guys you play golf with, she comes before sports. If your wife does not feel that way, then she probably doesn't. Then she probably doesn't. Then you're probably not honoring her above everything else in your life. And wife, if your husband does not feel like he comes before the kids and he comes before work and he comes before other obligations, he comes before TV shows or he comes before your group or he comes before whatever it is, if he does not feel that way, then he probably isn't the most important person in your life. See, it's not about just showing honor in your marriage. In all of our relationships, we're to show honor. But in marriage, it's not about just showing honor. In marriage, it's about making sure that person is honored more than any other person in your life, period. That they know that they are the most important person on the planet to you. Paul says that we're to outdo one another in honor. The old scoreboard's happiness. The new scoreboard outdoing one another in honor. But really, that's not the scoreboard. The scoreboard is really God's glory. Because when you do this in a Christian marriage, God is glorified. When you do this, when you honor one another and love one another, God is ultimately lifted up. Three reasons why you should outdo one another in honor very quickly. One, outdo one another in honor because it honors the choice you made. Unless you were forced to marry the person you're married to, you chose to marry that person. That was your choice. And if you talk bad about that person, all you're doing is talking bad about your choice. 
I never understand couples that constantly put each other down because all you're doing is putting yourself down and your choice of that person. It's like this. You choose something and then you invest in and you honor it. Once you make the choice, you honor it. It's like this. When, when, when I bought a phone, I remember the first time I bought my smartphone, right? I was the only one. I, this is the only thing in my life I've ever been an early adopter on. I was the only one I knew that owned a droid at that moment. Now I'm the only one I know that still owns a droid. But then, I was the only one I knew that owned a droid at that moment. But before I bought the phone, I went to the store, and, you know, there's the droids, and there's apples, and there's, I don't even know which ones are out then, right? HTC, there's a bunch of different ones, right? And I'm looking at them, and as I'm looking at them, they all have nice features, right? They all do smart things. They're all smart. And I look at them and this one does this and this one does this and this one looks nice and this one acts nice. And I'm looking at them and they're all fine. And I could tell you what's all great until I make my choice. Because once I make my choice and I walk out of the store with it, then the conversation changes. Because then the conversation is mine's the best. And let me tell you why mine is the best. Because it has... This, let me tell you why I chose it. Because I had a choice, and this is why I chose it, and this is why mine's better than yours. Right? I don't get any money from the phone company. I don't get any money from, from Motorola. They don't care about me buying. They don't care about me at all. But why do I feel the need to suddenly become this ambassador of a product that I know nothing about, that I, I have no obligation to? Because I chose it. And if it's a bad product, I made a bad choice. So why don't we take that to marriage? I mean, there's lots of people out there, but once you make your choice, why aren't we like that in marriage? Here's why mine's the best. You may like your wife, but let me tell you why my wife is the best. She's got these features. She's a smartphone. I mean, she's... Why aren't we like that in marriage? Why are we suddenly think, oh, maybe, you know, maybe there's another one out there I should have gone with. Stop it. Just honor the choice that you made. And when you start investing in the choice that you made, you will value that choice even more. When you invest in that choice, you will value that choice even more. And let me tell you the secret of actions and feelings. When you start investing your actions, your feelings start following. Because that's just the way you're wired. You buy the phone, you start endorsing the phone. You start valuing and investing in your marriage, you start feeling more valued and invested in your marriage. So when you honor your spouse, you honor the choice that you made. When you honor your spouse, you are honoring the God in whose image he or she is created. Say, they don't deserve honor. You're right. They don't. Neither do you. And neither do I. We don't deserve it. But I am created in God's image, and so are you, and so is your spouse. And so they deserve honor honor and love because of that and thirdly when you honor your spouse and this leads us into our communion table you are honoring the blood and the value that Jesus has put on that person 
Jesus died for that person. And the way they brush their teeth in the morning or leave the bathroom a mess or whatever other pet peeve drives you crazy pales in comparison to the fact that Jesus died for that person. He shed his blood so that that person could be redeemed because he loved her. He loved him. And for no other reason, honor them because of that. Honor them because they are a person that God loves. Outdo one another in honor. If you're going to fight for the last word, then let the last word be honor. If you're going to keep a scoreboard in your marriage, then let the scoreboard be how are you doing, outdoing one another in honor. We're going to come and gather around this communion table and I'm going to pray in just a moment. Just before I do, let me say that I know preaching one message on marriage, there is a lot I didn't cover. And there are a lot of yeah buts out there. And some of you may be there and you're a yeah but, right? You're a yeah, Pastor Rick, but. Yeah, but you don't know what happened in my life. Yeah, but you don't know what this person does. Yeah, but you don't know who I'm married to. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah. We, I, I just got to tell you, in one message, in one day, I don't have time for all the yeah, buts. But I'm starting a class on Wednesday night, this week, 6.30. And we can have time for a little more of the yeah, buts. We're a six-week class on marriage. And uh, we're going to talk about marriage and some of the other aspects of marriage. And we'll have some time for questions and maybe get into some of the yeah buts. I know there are different personal situations. I know I'm painting in broad strokes. But I believe these are principles of Scripture that if we will apply them to our relationships and apply them to our marriage, that it's not just happiness you'll find, but joy and fulfillment and deep love and ultimately God's glory. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. God, I thank you that you are the covenant-keeping God. Lord, we are failures so often at keeping the covenants and commitments that we have made. But I thank you that you have not once, you have never once failed to keep your covenant with us. Even when we broke it, you made a way for us to come back into relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you. And we come before that covenant-keeping God. And I ask for all the husbands and wives that are here today that you would help us to be covenant-keeping people. We live in a world that does not value the covenant of marriage. We live in a world that is constantly devaluing the covenant of marriage that is constantly elevating personal happiness over holy matrimony. God, help us to be a covenant-keeping people. Lord, it's not easy. And one message doesn't fix everything. But Lord, just help us to change that scoreboard from our happiness to your glory. Lord, that our goal would be to outdo one another in love and honor. In Christ's name.